And um, I lit it. I let it burn all weekend. Every time I passed by it, I would just stop and whisper, Reese, into the candle. <laughs> and I would just say, Reese, every time I passed it. And then Monday morning, I kid you not, my cell phone rang and it was my agent. She said, Reese really wants to talk to you. She's very interested. Cheryl Strayed is super famous now as the author of the 2012 memoir, Wild, which became a huge bestseller and was turned into a major Hollywood movie starring Reese Witherspoon. But she's also the author of the beloved advice column, Dear Sugar, which she started writing on The Rumpus 10 years ago and now publishes on Substack. She's the author of a novel called Torch, several books of essays, short stories, and she's hosted two podcasts for the New York Times. I recently went to Portland to meet Cheryl, and we talked about how she stays in touch with her true self, even as she's become so famous that she gets to hang out with people like Oprah. We talked about how to keep going as a writer when you're feeling miserable and defeated. And she told me about some special advice she got from her mentor, George Saunders, about how writers need to find their own mountains to climb. So welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Cheryl Strayed. I'm going to start by doing the basic thing, which is to ask you about the movie. And I wonder what it was like for you with Wild, in which you're portrayed by Reese Witherspoon. What was it like for you to see your mother portrayed by Laura Dern? Ah, it was so powerful and moving. You have immediately gone straight and immediately to my heart, and everyone listening who knows my work knows that about me. But it was, you know, it was a really powerful experience because, of course, one of the most complicated things about losing someone who is essential to you is that you lose them forever. When somebody dies, it's over forever. It's different than a breakup or a separation or, you know, taking time apart. It's it's dead. It's gone. It's over. And you will never get that person back for all the days of your life. And that is a very big thing to wrap your mind and your heart around. And, of course, through my work in writing about my mother in all my all the different forms I've written about her in my first novel, Torch, in a fictionalized way, in my in my memoir, Wild, in a nonfictional way, in my book, Tiny Beautiful Things, and, and also in my Substack newsletter, in my Dear Sugar letters, right? My mother makes many appearances. And so I have made her alive through my work. But it was a very different thing on a very different level when suddenly there was Laura Dern really you know, playing out, repeating words that my mother said to me. The costume designers, you know, looked at old photographs of my mother and and they sewed clothes that were the clothes that she wore. I gave Laura my mother's actual turquoise ring to wear while she was, you know, shooting the film. My daughter, Bobby, who's named after my mother, Bobby, who had just turned eight when we shot the film, she plays the young me. When Reese Witherspoon remembers her childhood, that's my daughter, Bobby. And so, you know, my my daughter, Bobby, and my son, Carper, really got to, in some bizarre way, (laughs) in some surreal way, like, meet the grandmother they would never know in the form of Laura Dern. And so that was really powerful stuff. I cried a lot. I laughed a lot. I marveled a lot. I... I absorbed it as the most surreal experience of my life, really, that whole that whole movie experience. 
The reason I ask that is because it seems, well, I've heard you or read you refer to your mother's death and everything that followed. You went into a spiral afterwards. It led you to eventually go walk the Pacific Crest Trail, which led to eventually your memoir, which led to Oprah promoting this book and putting you onto the bestseller, which must have been, all of these are life-changing moments. And then led yeah, to and, the Yeah, and just, I mean, no, like Oprah was amazing, but guess what? Wild was on the bestseller list before Oprah came along. I guess what I the reason I point that out is what a thrill that was for me is the, when the first week Wild was out. Yeah. It was number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. And what I thought when that happened is, okay, universe, thank you. Every dream I had about myself as a writer came true. And I can now just, like, go back to my little hidey hole in my little cave and write. Thank you. And then, of course, that Oprah stuff that came later. Um, and she did, of course, when she came along, it boosted it to number one. It's an amazing story. And I want to get into, like, what that experience and that sort of transition in your life was like a little bit later. But the point I was going uh, for with, with the talk about your mother is that you've described it, I think, as your kind of Genesis story in which you died. And this led you into this other life. And she is frequently coming up through your work. Right. And I wanted to, to like, is there some sense of you sort of writing to keep her alive? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is the beauty and the power of art and, and certainly of literature. You know, we live on in the people who remember us and the stories that are told about us. And there are so many beautiful, powerful examples of that, you know, that that we know the the, the stories and the names of, of the people who have come before us is very often because a story has been written about them or sung about them or told about them. And, and so, yeah, I feel very much part of that. And the way that my mom's death is my genesis story is that— you know, like anyone who's lost somebody who's essential to them, what happens, what, what happened to me and what happens to all of us when suddenly the world we're living in is the world without that essential person, the world's a different place. And not just kind of a different place, a radically different place. And so even though, of course, I had 23 years of life uh, with my mother uh, before she died, that, that life is still part of who I am. But... I had to redefine life. I had to figure out how to live again on the, you know, when my mother died from that day forward, I had to figure out how to live again differently. Do you feel like you've done all the exploring there that can be done? Oh, no, I haven't. And and that is, I think, the really interesting thing about about grief to me is that I, you know, my mom's been dead since 1991. Like, how many years is that? I, I mean, I can't even do the math. It's, 32. Yeah, it's a lot, right? And I've lived more years without her than with her. And and I, what I've learned about that is, of course, in those first years, that first decade after she died, the grief uh, was very acute. It was very much about sorrow and, and anger and all kinds of, you know, very, uh, I think, big emotions and in my 30s and 40s and now into my 50s, I'm 54, you know, it's emerged in different ways in my life. You know, it, it comes um, now, it, it comes up in more occasional ways. It comes up in ways that, that I've sometimes had to, you know, have a good cry. Sometimes I've had to think really hard about or struggle with. In a lot of ways, the grief over my mother, the ways that it's kind of turned, it's turned into wisdom in my life. Right. And so I'm able to console other people or advise right. other people, whether it be in the form of, 
you know, advice is dear sugar or as a friend. Right. Because I've gone on that journey. I'm such a believer, totally, that to turn, you know, turning those ugly things into beauty is really what what our job here is. You know, if we if you want to live a whole happy, evolved life, you need to figure out a way to do that. We're all going to have burdens. We're all going to have stuff happen to us that we really don't want to have happen to us. We're all going to suffer. We're going to be in pain. And so what do you do with that is really the biggest question I think we all have to answer with our lives. I'll get into some more of that in a little bit as well, but I, I want to keep talking about this sort of transitional moment and by the way, I think for people who are checking my math, I said thirty-two years. It might have been, th- it might be thirty-one years uh, since since nineteen ninety-one. Oh, what uh, were you an English major? I was an English major, Me too. so I don't do numbers. It's we're not, not, not expected. Not no, it's yeah. a long fucking time. That's right. Okay, yeah. so it's a long time. A, Three a decades. The thing I was going to get at is, I don't imagine you set out in your life as a writer aiming to be- have a Hollywood movie made about your work and aiming to become featured on Oprah and aiming to become, like, a famous person. (laughs) (laughs) That is what happened. And how crazy was it for you uh, that it it is what happened, given your initial aims as a a writer? It's the craziest thing. I mean, like, that's—and also, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the the next big exciting thing that's happening is— um, Tiny Beautiful Things, my my Dear Sugar book, is being made into a TV show for oh, Hulu. Wow. And it will be out early uh, in early 2023, so in a few months. Wow. And I'm one of the writers on the show. I'm an executive producer on the show. I've been very involved in making it. So it's been this really interesting experience to say, as as you point out, my dreams were always to be a writer. And that was to write books, to write stories and essays. And I never, I was never somebody who really had much dreaming about Hollywood. You know, when when people, you know, how people are like, who would you, who would play you in the movie? Like, I never had an answer to that question right. because I never really wondered about it until I was actually asked that question. Right? Who would you like? <laughs> who do you think? Did you get to choose that? Oh yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think people have this funny idea about Hollywood that like. Especially, you know, we're, we're, I guess we're so used to seeing writers as these kind of like lowly, lowly beings. It's like, you know, people will be like, how did it feel when Reese Witherspoon, you know, selected you? And it's like, well, you know, it was a little, it was a little more equal than that. You know, it's my book. It's my story. It, it The question I asked is who do I think would honor this story? Who would be able to bring it to life and and be true to it? And and Reese w- was the first person. My agent said, you know, sh- you're going to really, to get a movie made about a woman walking through the wilderness is, first of all, a challenging thing to do. It was before the book was published. And, you know, you really have to find an actress who would, who would really attach herself to this role and get it made. And she suggested Reese Witherspoon my, it's my uh, film and TV agent, Sherry Smiley, suggested Reese Motherspoon. And she said, and by the way, Reese has just really founded this company. She's starting to really look for roles for strong women. You know, enough of this, the the uncomplicated, cute woman. Like, let's have some strong women. Let's have some stories about them. So it was really a great timing moment. I And I said, okay, let, you know, send her the galley of the book. And she read it over the weekend. I mean, this was like a Friday if you want the real story, it was, this was a Friday, and I lit uh, I lit one of those um, tall candles. I always forget the name of what they're— Votive or something? Yeah, like, but a really tall one, you know? And um, I lit it. I let it burn all weekend. Every time I passed by it, I would just stop and whisper, Reese, into the candle. 
And then Monday. This is how you do it. This, this is, is how it's done. writers listening. <laughs> this, yeah, this is an instruction manual to get your film made, <laughs> your book made into a film. And I would just say, Reese, every time I passed it. And then Monday morning, I kid you not, my cell phone rang and it was my agent. She said, Reese really wants to talk to you. She's very interested. And I said, okay, let's talk. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I got on the phone and was like, oh my God, Reese, thank you so much. It was like, hello, Reese, I really respect your work. And what do you think? Why do you think you would be the person to to play this role or to produce this film? She did both. And we had a wonderful conversation, an hour or two, both of us really talking about our work and our careers and our vision and our lives. And I immediately sensed that I could trust her, and I was not wrong about that. You were an established author by that point. You'd written Torched, published Torched, uh, Torched, sorry. You had graduated from the... Uh, Syracuse uh, writing program where you were mentored by George Saunders and Mary Gates School, among others. You'd been a reporter in small town Minnesota back in the day. But still, where did you get that poise and confidence to be able to approach that project like that with Hollywood? Why weren't you the sort of the the giddy, excited writer on the other end of the phone thinking, finally, like, well, here's my break and I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to mess this up. Sure, whoever wants it. Oh, because, you know, and I, I'm so grateful for this. I was a grown-up by then when I was selling the book and everything. I was 42. And, and, and not just the movie, but, like, the big success that Wilde had. I remember just feeling really very fortunate that I was in my 40s by the time that happened to me. Hmm. Because I did have this experience that was just, you know, like an absolute rocket ship ride. You know, it wasn't, I had been a successful writer. I had a very kind of, you know, career that that many, many writers have in America and around the world where I was known among this, you know, pretty small literary orbit of people. I'd published my first novel torch, like you said, I published essays, you know, I went to conferences, I was, I taught classes at universities, I did the things that writers do. But, uh, you know, certainly, it's, it's a, it's a small pool of people who knew my name. So I knew who I was as a writer, is what I'm saying. So then when all that amazing stuff happened with Wilde, which is like, you know, I'm talking to Reese, I'm talking to Oprah, and you know, like, I'm, all that stuff, that I was just like, I could, I could take it with, I could, I could just have fun with it, rather than let it be the thing that told me who I am, right. rather than let it be the measuring stick of my worth or my achievement. Did it create more pressure for you or less pressure after that to, you know, as a writer? Both. (laughs) Both. Less pressure in that, you know, I did finally have, for the first time in my entire life, financial stability. How big a deal was that for you? A big deal. A big deal. You know, I grew up in poverty. I paid my way through college. And in fact, as I said, you know, so I was 43 when when Wild was published in March of 2012. And then um, in September of that year, I turned 44, six months, you know, about six months after the book came out. Mm-hmm. And I paid off my student loan on my 44th birthday with money that I'd earned from Wild. What did that feel like? It felt beautiful. On that same day um, that I paid off my student loan, I opened an, an account, a savings account for my college, my kid's college fund. And that was tremendous. I was genuinely in, in, you know, real financial strife always, all through my adult life. Um, my husband's a documentary filmmaker, also doesn't come for money. And so we were always hand to mouth and, you know, all, you know really in, in debt and trouble. And there was so much stress all the time, huge stressor. And 
constantly trying to piece together a way to, you know, make a living and pay the bills and often, you know, failing at that. When, you know, one of the things that's that's sort of crazy but true is that, so when Wild first came out, I told you it was like number seven on the bestseller list. And, you know, it's like, you know, it those those giddy first weeks where I was like, oh, my God, I'm a New York Times bestseller. I was on my book tour and my husband texted me and he said, Cheryl, our rent check bounced. Mm. What happened? And I said, what happened is we don't have any money in our account. <laughs> yeah. and, and we laughed. I mean, it was so stressful, but we laughed because I was like, nobody would believe this, that like I'm, a New York, I'm on the New York Times bestseller list and I don't have enough money in my account to pay our rent. And those two things can be true at once. And, but, but quickly, you know, it takes a little while to get paid, you know, for right. your book. But then everything changed. And I don't have to worry about that anymore. It doesn't mean I don't have to work and still, you know, but I, I, I now have a foundation and a security that I never had. And that's a big deal. You wrote something not so long ago, and I'm just going to quote from what you wrote. It was on your Substack. A few months ago, I was talking to my friend Dorothy about how miserable I felt about my writing. Not just that day, not just that week, but almost always. I told her that every time I wrote... It felt to me like I was a fraud, that I believed that no matter how many times I'd managed to do it before, I deeply doubted that I could do it again. Or even if I did somehow do it, the whole thing would be terrible. All those hours gone to waste, all that work for nothing. Which is something I think that every writer feels. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there must be there must be like among some writers who are trying to cross the line that you've already crossed, a sense of terror that even the great Cheryl Strayed <laughs> feels this way when she sits down at the page. You know, I, I, I hope that it offers them some comfort. I mean, like, it's kind of like, well, kids, the news is bad. You're always going to feel miserable about your writing. But, <laughs> uh, but I also want to just encourage people to say, listen, take it as comfort, because the truth is it's hard to write. Because we are making something out of nothing. We are creating words on the screen or the page where nothing right now exists. And it's all coming from your mind and your spirit and your heart. And that is big, important work. And it asks us to be more honest than we're than we are in regular life. It asks us to be more vulnerable than we are in regular life. It asks us to be as sort of open-minded and intelligent and think with all of our critical skills as well as all of our senses, right? It, it demands so much. So it's big work. And so no wonder it's hard. And and what I said in that that piece that you quoted from, you know, after after that that quote ends, I go on to say, what if I approached it in this new way and said, actually, instead of resisting that feeling, welcome it. To say, oh, this is actually, the reason I feel this every time I write is this is part of my writing. And it's kind of like I wrote in Wild, you know, when I was hiking alone out in the wilderness. The the most common question I get is, weren't you afraid? Weren't you afraid? And it's like, of course I was afraid. But the way that I decided to do that was to to take into my heart this idea that I wasn't afraid. So I would say to myself, I am not afraid. But I would only say it, of course, when I was afraid. And that is a way of saying, like, I welcome you fear to the table, but I do not welcome you to be the one who tells us all what to do. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to live my life by that fear. And I'm not going to live, I'm not going to be a writer who, who gives way to those doubts and anxieties, because if I do, I'll never write anything. 
And now that you're friends with famous people and being famous yourself, and you know you you know Oprah. I saw her on your Twitter feed the other day a photo <laughs> a photo with Oprah, Reese Witherspoon, a bunch of uh, Laura Dern, uh, uh, and I'm sure a ton of people I, I don't even realize. Does it make it harder in any way for you to remain in touch with the girl you were when you grew up, and then the the young woman you were when when your mother died? You know, yes and no. Not really. Not not in that way that maybe people imagine like, oh, okay, well, now, you know, she's one of the fancy people. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, yeah, I mean, have I absolutely had those moments where I'm like, what is happening here? Like, how have I gotten here? You know, um, how am I sitting in this restaurant, you know, with Oprah Winfrey or Reese Witherspoon or whatever, right? That, like, I I do have those surreal, like, what's what's happened kind of stuff. But I think that that's, you know, almost always true for really any of us, especially those of us who have in our own life trajectories, um, culture or class hopped like I did. You know, I grew up, honestly, without indoor plumbing in northern Minnesota, in poverty, in, a, in you know, 20 miles in, from the nearest little town of 400 people out in the woods. And I had a wonderful life, and I had a hard life, and I had a life that was utterly and entirely different from the life that I have now. But again, you know, the, the, the most important things are always in so, what's inside of us. And the continuous thread in my life, the one continuous thread in my life has been writing. I fell in love with words when I first learned how to read. And, and I, I knew in some way, before I even realized somebody like me could grow up and become a writer, I knew that I wanted to be somebody who made that kind of penetrating beauty and truth that writing can make. And that has been the star that I have followed all along the way. Yeah, it seems that you sort of, you're at a point in your life where you could gladly accept it and go with it, but it was not something that was going to change you. It had an external effect, but not an internal effect. Right. And it was just really fun, too. I mean, I have to say. Yeah. You know, it's fun to go to the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I haven't, haven't made Except it yet. the fake eyelashes. That's not fun. But, you, you have know, to wear fake eyelashes? Well, you don't Is have to. Is that a requirement? <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, that's, something, that's something interesting. Like, um, it, you know, it, I, 10 years ago is when I was going to the Oscars and stuff, right? And I, I, if I could do it again, the one thing I would change about that experience is I would be like, you know what? I'm not going to wear high heels. I don't care if all the women in Hollywood are wearing heels. I'm wearing, you know, some, some like Doc Martens or something. Why do you have that feeling now? Well, now, you know, it's, it's as you, with, with every year, you grow up and get more mature and get more sure of who you are. And when I was doing all that, that stuff, going to the Golden Globes and going to the Oscars and everything, you know, I was a, a little bit, you know, I was in a new world. And I was like, okay, so I have to wear high heels because that's women wear like these glamorous dresses and you always have to wear heels with them. And I didn't know how to walk in heels. Like, and they, I could never truly be trained. I could I could never really wear the real, like mm-hmm. four and five, you know, but even just like a two or three inch heel, I was, I was just, you know, it was hell. It was murder on my feet. And I look back on that and think like, no, damn it, I wish I had said, this is ridiculous. As a feminist, as a woman, I'm not going to take part in this. And so I, I would now, like... If we have the great fortune, if I get to attend any of those hoity-toity Hollywood things for tiny, beautiful things, I will be wearing sensible footwear. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure the photographers know in advance. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So at what point did you decide to get into advice writing? You're known very well for Dear Sugar, a much-beloved column. It seems that you started that around the same time that um, Wild was being released 
Am I right with the chronology yeah, there? Yeah, so I'm sorry what, to make you do math again. No, that's okay. I know this math. So what happened is I had written, I had sold Wild and, and written Wild and sent off the first complete draft to my editor. And I was just waiting, you know, for her feedback. And uh, Steve Almond, who hey, wasn't at that time my friend, we were acquainted with each other. We had met, we had both taught at a conference. He had read my first book, Torch, and some of my essays. I'd read his work, and we, we met at this conference, and we were like, oh, hey, you know, I love your work. I love your work. And then onward we went. And I started to read this. I noticed that, that there was this new website called The Rumpus, and I started. I saw there was this advice column, Dear Sugar, and it was anonymous. And I started to read it, and I, and I liked this writing. I thought it was funny and it was smart, but it was only published intermittently. And so through the portal on the, the Rumpus website, I wrote to this person and said, hey, I wish you wrote the column more. I really like your writing, and I don't know who you are, so, you know, but, but you're a good writer. Write the column more. And a month or two later, I get an email from Steve Allman, and he says, Cheryl, you are the only person who has written me a fan letter wow. ever. Wow. <laughs> Which, well, you know, I thought he was being hyperbolic, and he, later he told me, no, 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 really, like, you're the only person who ever wrote me a fan letter as Dear Sugar. And he said, when you did, I realized, oh, my gosh, that she is sugar. Because he had read my work and my essays and, and and even my fiction, which is very emotional and, you know, open-hearted, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And um, he's like, I think that you would actually be really good at this. And do you want to take it over? And he's like, the, here's the thing. Nobody reads it. Nobody writes to me for advice. And it pays nothing. Zero. Zero. It's a good pitch. Yeah, great pitch. And I'm like, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> you know, and— You didn't so, know you were about to become a massive bestseller at that point. Or did you have a hunch? Right. No, did you have no, a hunch? no, no. I mean, I had—no, I knew that, like, you know, Wild had sold in this big, exciting flurry. and you know, But I also, again, being, you know, in my 40s by then, I knew that, um, you know, a lot of books sell for a bunch of money and then don't get, you know— Like, you just don't know, right? Yeah. So I didn't count on it, and I was still trying to— piece together how to pay the bills. and um, But I just said yes because I felt like there was some spark. There, there was an, I just felt like this is really interesting. I've always been most interested in people's inner lives. All of my work, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, is deeply about the emotional terrain, relationships, feelings, our inner lives, all of that. That's my subject area, I would say. And what better cool thing than to have like you know, letters from people telling you their secrets and their struggles and their sorrows. So the the beautiful thing about not being paid to write, which I'm not a super big fan of, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that much, but the beautiful thing about that was, at, le- at least at that moment in my life, is I was like, well, nobody's the boss of me. You mm. know what I mean? And I can write whatever I want to write. I wasn't, you know, edited. I wasn't... No, no, no editing at all? No, I would send it every week to Isaac Fitzgerald, who was the managing editor, but and he would just be like, there you go. I mean, wow. oftentimes I would send it to him, honestly, like 15 minutes before it went up. So there wasn't like some editorial process I passed. It was very direct, you know. Wow. And I just thought, I'm going to do whatever I want, and that means I'm going to give it everything I have. And I'm going to write this advice column really in a way that is more like literature than about than than advice you know like i never thought i was doing self help right you know i i thought i was writing essays it's, a, it's, a, essays it's an act about of life. writing for you yeah yeah and it was really an act of 
examining those deep questions about what it means to be human. And so I, I, I did that in the column. And what happened was so cool. And I know we want to talk about the Internet because I, I have to say, like, this was a very sort of interesting time in the Internet's life and mm-hmm. in my life because my my main reservation when I said yes to the Dear Sugar column is I said, you know, I, I said to Steve Almond and Isaac Fitzgerald, who was the managing editor, and Steve Elliott, who was the founder of The Rumpus, listen, I'm not snarky. I'm not funny. I'm not one of these cool San Francisco mm. dudes, you know? This is the time when Gorka kind of rolled that's the internet right. for a certain crowd. And that's what was happening on the internet. Right. And I said, I am sincere. I am. You live in Portland? I'm sincere. <laughs> I'm earnest. I'm like, I'm going to write from my heart, mm-hmm. you know? And I am also going to be... I'm also a very serious writer, but I'm, you know, I'm going to come from that perspective. And, of course, they were like, whatever, you know, you don't have to, <laughs> d- don't do it or do it. We don't care. No we're one reads this yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what happened is people started to share it with each other, and, and people were surprised by its sincerity, and people were hungry for its sincerity. People ate it up like mad and shared it with each other, and, like, I couldn't. You know, you know, I even though I wasn't like you know post wild famous, I had a follow. You know, I would like I said, I was known in the literary orbit. Right. I couldn't share it on my social media because oh, I because you were anonymous. Was anonymous. Oh, right. So I was completely reliant on essentially the readers saying, you know, putting it on Twitter or sharing it with each other. One of the funniest things that would happen to me quite often is other writers and friends would read it and then they would post it on my Facebook wow. page and say, Cheryl. I think he would love this. Wow. And I'd be like, yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> but you did come out eventually. I did. So what but and so when I said I would do it, you know, didn't expect what would happen. Of course, it grew this cult following. And I, but I always knew from the very beginning. I said, I'll do the anonymity as an experiment cuz it's fun, but I will someday reveal my identity. It was really interesting to see that um that you know, the internet could be a beautiful place where people could actually share the, you know, very vulnerably with each other in a really sincere and loving and supportive way. And that is exactly what happened, what, what you know, I fostered and built with the Dear Sugar column. Were you surprised that it could be that? Yes. The literary scene was very like, ooh, you know, like, you know, snarky, sarcastic, you know, tricksterism and a kind of, and then especially on the internet, a lot of, a lot of kind of like, it's, it's so much more fun to kind of cut people down and mock them than right. to lift them up and support them. And and so I did something different, and we needed it. And I learned we needed it because I trusted, I just wrote what I had to say. Were you surprised that you liked being an advice writer? Yes. Yes, I was totally surprised, Hamish. I wasn't like, I mean, like, I was like, okay, I've never gone through therapy. I've <laughs> never taken a class in psychology. I've never, I'm, I wasn't a book, uh, like a self-help book reader or even, you know, I would read advice columns like if I saw it like, you know, in the paper or a link came up or something. But I wasn't really uh, versed in the form. And so it was a surprise. And yet it ended up being like, I felt like it was the perfect combination of everything I hope to do as a writer, which is I really, 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 really believe in the power of story. I really believe story is essential to us and we need it. We need it individually, collectively. We need we need those stories to tell us who we are, to show us who we can be, to teach us what 
um, you know, what cruelty is and what beauty is and what love is and what connection is and what loss is and what triumph is and what all those things are, right? I really, really, really believe it. And sometimes I think as a writer, you can feel a little bit like, what is my purpose? Why am I doing this? Should I do something more direct, you know, to address climate change or, you know, poverty or racism or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And what I could see and still see in Dear, Dear Sugar is like the actual, literal, practical, useful, transformative power of literature. Writing work that that honestly, directly helps people, helps people change, helps people make decisions about themselves and their paths that I think eventually lead to the betterment of all of us. Do you know what you're going to say before you start uh, writing in response to one of these letters? No. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's terrible. I mean, I, I don't. I don't to, to such a great high degree that, like, it would kind of maybe blow your mind. Is, um, because I just... The answer is dump him. Oh, no, wait. I'm changing my mind. Stay with him. <laughs> no, no. Like, I, I find uh, this is just true for me. I, in fact, I just last night published my most recent newsletter where I talk about this very thing. I, I said how, you know, my mind kind of goes blank. I read a letter and I think, okay, I have, I have no idea what advice to give you. But I trust that blankness. I trust that once I begin writing, something will happen. I will find those connections, I will find that story, I will find the words, the, sometimes the images, that I can begin to try to help that person. Not just, you know, I really think of my advice is much more not me saying, like, do this, I think you should do that, right. but rather digging beneath the question, illuminating the truth that we need to to illuminate so that we can make good choices for ourselves. And very often, echoing back to the person what they are, the letter writer, what they already know, right. but are maybe afraid to know. It seems like through your advice writing that you're helping people think. And I, I, I'm not sure if you agree with this, but if you don't know what you're going to write before you write it, it seems like you're helping yourself think as well. Of course. I mean, that's what writing is, right? I mean, I that, 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 it's, it's both the terrifying and awful thing about writing, and it's the beautiful and glorious thing. I, I think it's the thing about writing that feels... Uh, like magic to me that can sometimes feel like uh, sacred or spiritual to me, uh, transcendent. Th that word transcendent, it really is, is uh, its etymology is all about like, you know, sort of loss of the self or moving outside of the self and into a different realm. And writing takes me there, you know, that, that I, it's through the writing that I know what I think and feel. What do you make of Twitter then? <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of writing on Twitter. There's a lot of thoughts on Twitter. There's a lot of reactions on Twitter. It's internet comes with good and bad. You're on Twitter. You you tweet uh, a lot. Like, how does the existence of Twitter and what's playing out on Twitter fit into your concept of writing and its and its role in helping bring stories to the world? Yeah, I f I think of myself as like a sort of like a like a little bird who sort of like flies like I'm part of Twitter I'm like Twitter light I sort of I like hover over the Twitter feed and flit around <laughs> you know I I tweet but I also sometimes don't tweet I I read some of the latest dramas of the day there's always a kind of like these big you know, like literary dramas that get played out over Twitter. And I, I tend to try to stay out of the fray. I think that, you know, Twitter is like all of the internet and like cell phones and like a whole lot of stuff is, and it's this, it's, it's both, it's both and, it's opposite things, it's good, it's bad, it's beautiful, 
I think in so many ways, social media has been such a gift to writers in this way that we get to be connected to each other. We get to support each other and champion champion each other. You know, before Twitter existed, I knew tons of writers, right? We would see each other at the AWP conference every year, or we would be at readings together. You know, there are all these different ways to cross um, with them. But I have been able to stay connected to a lot of those people through social media. Hmm. So somebody I might have met at a conference 10 years ago is now somebody whose tweet I see a couple times a week, you Mm -hmm. know? And I love that about it. I also think that it can be a kind of, uh, sort of, it has its dark side, right? We've seen people be devoured Mm -hmm. on social media. We've seen writers be condemned, um, sometimes fairly, sometimes not fairly. We've seen a lot of really complicated things play out in really simple terms on Twitter that are just, are devastating, and hard to watch mm-hmm. and brutal. And, you know, just like social media offers us that arena for connection and support, it offers that arena for its opposite. I want to be off Twitter. I want to not be drawn into the dramas, but I am constantly drawn back in. And sometimes I go on total detoxes. Sometimes I just don't open it that day, or I just sort of draw up the willpower not to go near the fire. But often I fail, despite <laughs> my good intentions. I'm wondering... Like, what do you do? What Do you have guardrails for yourself to, to stop that taking over too much of your mind? I do. I, I try to do what you just described. I take breaks. You know, something something interesting has happened in my own life in a different realm. So um, I love to drink. <laughs> <laughs> common, common writer I mean, of passion. I mean, I, like, my joke is like, I'm always like, I'm so glad I don't have an alcohol problem because I love to drink, you know. <laughs> but, but it, like, I was, I went to the doctor and they're like, listen. You need to drink moderate, more. <laughs> moderate drinking is is like, you know, seven, no more than seven drinks a week. So that's like just one glass of wine a night instead of two glasses of wine. So I'm like, that can't be, no way. Okay, but but that is true. That's true. Uh-huh. And then and then I started, it was like, okay, I'm going to research this. Like, I'm going to actually research, like, with the effects of alcohol on the body. And I'm like, the news isn't good, Hamish. I just hate to tell you. Okay, so I was like, listen, I don't want to get entirely sober and say I'll never drink again, right? Because I enjoy a glass of wine. But I also will acknowledge that the truth is, is it actually doesn't serve me to have even one glass of wine every day, that it doesn't serve me to drink even moderately. So my goal is less. And so I, I've done this thing where I'm like, I'm now just the very occasional drinker, like, you know, maybe one, one or two drinks a week, maybe not even, you know, one or two drinks a week, maybe a few drinks a month, mm. less, less. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that that same rule applies to me for social media, too. Mm -hmm. That to say, like, I am, you know, it's something that can be fun sometimes, that I enjoy sometimes, and that's enriching sometimes, Mm -hmm. but way less than I might be just naturally inclined to do it. Being a writer on the internet, does it feel any different in 2022 than it did in 2012? Well, first of all, there are a lot more people on there, (laughs) right? You know, it's, I, it's being well discovered by now. Yeah, <laughs> even the really old people, you know, um, are on there. And just on Facebook, right? <laughs> that's on Facebook, right? But you know, I I do think that, like I said, there was, I think there's a wider a wider sort of range of people and a wider territory. There was so much a kind of gawkerish, kind of snarky, kind of feeling. I think back in the day, in the early 2010s, and I think that there is a, a softness that's that can be there now more. I mean, I certainly, in my own experience, also on Substack, you know, writing on the internet, mm. um, just 
the amount of, like, loving kindness that I receive is pretty wonderful. And it's strangers, some of them strangers who I start to kind of feel like I know as friends, you right. know, that those people who, like, always comment on the post or, um, you know, who are just going to put a little like on your, your you know, your tweets or your comments or my, my Substack post. It's, there's this one, it has that wonderful kind of feeling of, of loving kindness um, that we can share across, you know, the mystery of the Internet. I remember the day that we found out that you had created a Substack account. It just came out of the blue, and we were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. It did. It just, I, I just signed up. It was like— Was it an, an impulse? It was, an, it was a total impulse. Do you, do you want to know how I Tell found my way whole, to Substack? Tell me the whole—, yeah, every detail, please. <laughs> <laughs> so I had uh, this—I still have this website that's kind of like hosted by like the Authors Guild of America, which I'm a member of. And and I it has this little like newsletter feature on on that website. But I saw that so many people had signed up for my newsletter that it was like—and and it wasn't really built to have that many people, mm-hmm. you know. So I realized I had to find a different platform. And I know I'm not like a tech-savvy person. I do do my own website. But I was like, okay, how do I do a newsletter? And I went from place to place. And it was either um, I had too many subscribers for them to host me for free, or I was going to have to spend like, you know, like thousands of dollars. And I was like, I don't even like hardly ever write a newsletter. Like, what am I? This is ridiculous. And I had remembered that like maybe a year before or something, somebody from Substack had emailed me and said, this is what we're doing. This is who we are. We'd love for you to write for us. And would you like to talk to us? And I was just like dragged it into like to-do file, you know, like <laughs> never responded. Yeah. And I was like, what is this Substack thing? So I click onto the website and then click, 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 click. And suddenly I've migrated my entire yes, <laughs> newsletter. Yes, the magic is working. <laughs> I just migrated my entire newsletter onto Substack. Amazing, like literally in the course of a night. You know, just did this. I was like, okay, so now I think I could write a letter and press send, and it'll go to everyone in this newsletter. And and I saw that there was this thing that was like, oh, and you can also do like uh, offer like a, a subscription newsletter. So mm-hmm. honestly, I didn't think it through. I just thought like, Oh, maybe this will be kind of fun. So I write this this first newsletter, and I'm like, I'm going to restart the Dear Sugar column because that was the other thing. It was during the pandemic. It was right. October of 2020, right. like two years ago, and I so many people were writing to me and saying, "Bring Dear Sugar back. We need you know." How, so long, thought, how oh. long had it been away at that point? Well, I had been you know I'd done it in different forms, right? I did the column, and then Steve Allman and I did the Dear Sugars podcast, right. and then I did a, a podcast called Sugar Calling that wasn't advice, but like talking to writers. Both of these were so, the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. But it's been a while. So I just thought, I'll do a one Dear Sugar letter a month. And I wrote that post and sent it out into the, you know, and I thought, I hope this Substack thing works. <laughs> <laughs> and Gl- I, glad it did. <laughs> and I woke up in the morning, and I was like, what have I done? Because I had so many subscribers. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I guess I'm restarting the Dear Sugar column. (laughs) But like, I didn't, it was, it was just really, I went down this like technological path. You led me down the path. Yeah, I know. know. And then you, and then the next day I got an email from you guys saying, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it might sound like um, happenstance to you, but unbeknownst to you, I had a huge tall candle that I I lit (laughs) and had in the corner of my bedroom. And every time I walked past it, I'd whisper, Cheryl. Cheryl. (laughs) It worked. See? 
Hamish, we are giving solid, sound advice here. Yeah. How do you get people to do what you want them to do? You light a candle and you whisper their name. The candle industry is going to be delighted with this interview. <laughs> And, what, and so what's this experience been like for you? Um, you didn't really know what you were getting yourself into when you set up the Substack. You have paid subscriptions as part of it. You have this tight community around you. You have people waiting on tenterhooks for the next letter to drop. <laughs> You're publishing letters from the archive, which seem timeless and which is an interesting thing for the internet, given that Twitter is, uh, for example, and other social media, so much of the moment. You can draw back into the archives and publish this thing from 10 years ago and yeah. it still seems totally relevant. You're doing other things as well. You sometimes write notes to people about your travels and, you know, what you're up to. Yeah. Well, like, what's what's the whole experience been like for you with this with this paid newsletter? I'm not trying to turn it into a, a Substack ad, but it's a significant thing, it seems, that you're doing on, oh, on Substack. Oh, it's been really fun. I mean, I do both a free newsletter and then the the paid one. Right. And I, it's both have been just so cool. Like, one of my favorite things that I did, um, I, I love, so just the, before I tell you about what this the favorite thing is, is I love the freedom of, I mean, it's such a simple idea and such a damn good idea that you get to write stuff and send it to people. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Yeah, it's underrated. You know? yeah. And it's like, oh, there we are. Like, we get to have this direct relationship, which I love. And so, and of course, I love the other stuff, too. I love publishing books. And, you know, that's the, where there's a bunch of people between me and, and you know, the, the readers. But it's, but it's a really cool, very direct way to speak to your community. And so one of the things I did last spring in my newsletter is that I— it was the 10th anniversary of Wild. I wanted to recognize it. And I went and took, uh, th- there was a scene that I had cut from Wild at my editor's encouragement. I, I read this, yeah. And I put it in there. And people were like, oh, my gosh. And it was just such a cool thing. Like, that is a piece of work that's a scene that would never have seen the light of day. Right. And then it was because I got to put it on my Substack. And it's an amazing scene, actually. I just read this. So it's fresh in my mind. You describe reconnecting with an old lover before you start the the big hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. And you describe doing heroin again after you thought you'd sort of put distance between yourself and heroin. And then you ended up cutting that from the book, which now that I've read that passage, I'm kind of amazed. It seems like a significant sort of moment in your life just before you start this big journey. But you said that you can't even remember why why you cut it. And I'm, I was so glad that this got to see the light of day in this in this forum, in this, in this new place. But yeah, can you like, can you... Maybe help people understand, like, why something like that might not see the yeah. light of day in a, in a book. And then what is, the, what is the meaning to you, personally, that you were able to actually put it out there 10 years later on the anniversary of Wild? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it was basically we made the decision to cut it. My, my editor said, okay, you know, there's all this backstory, right? Like, I tell the story of my childhood, uh, my mother's death, my grief, uh, my wild 20s, you know, my sort of self-destructive time after my mother died, and and then I'm going to go hike this trail. And then we're like, oh, damn, it's like page 200 before I'm on the trail, right? right. So just some—and this is, this is what happens in filmmaking, this is what happens in bookmaking, and all kinds of art making, where it's not—you don't cut things because they're bad. Sometimes you do. But you cut things often for reasons that are just architectural Mm. or tonal or, you know, uh, maybe my editor was like, okay, enough of the druggy stuff. Like, you can maybe just say you used heroin before you went on the trail, which is what I did. Mm. Say, you know, in the the final book, I mention it, but, but I didn't dramatize it. Right. And, you know, if I could go back in time, 
I would leave that scene in. Now that I when I when I went back and found it and put it in my Substack newsletter, I was like, gosh, you know, and if I wish that I'd made a different decision about this. But but that's that's what the beauty of making art is about, right? You're like, okay, I would have I would have done it slightly different now, but I but you know, onward, right? We're mm-hmm. always moving forward. But the beauty of like then being able to say like here audience, you might be curious about this, you know, is pretty cool to be able to have. You can print it out and, like, insert it into your copy of Wild. (laughs) (laughs) Special edition. (laughs) Staple edition. That's right. What do you say to those people who wish they could be the next Cheryl Strayed? They're they're toiling away. (laughs) Maybe they've got a job. They're writing their sub stacks. They're writing uh, their manuscripts. They don't know if it's going to work out for them. That's a, you know, it can be difficult to picture how to make a living as a writer in this kind of age. What do you say to those folks? Oh, well, first of all, I it's it's hard to make a living as a writer in any age, but really in this one in a big way. And I think that nobody can be the next Cheryl Strayed, you know? Um, we can only be the next version of whoever we are. George Saunders taught me this in a really beautiful way. I'll never forget. So I, you know, went to got my MFA in fiction writing in Syracuse, and he was my mentor. And he he went to the board, and he made these, like, mountains, you know, on the board. And he's like, okay, this is this is the Alice Monroe Mountain, which, you know, she's my favorite. Right. Here's the, you know, Ernest Hemingway Mountain. Here's the Chekhov Mountain. Here's the Toni Morrison Mountain, you know, fill in, fill in the blank, right? Whatever writer you most admire or want to be like, uh, you know, th- you're ascending that, that mountain. Part of your apprenticeship— of becoming a writer is reading those people and studying those people and seeing how they got uh, where they went. You know, not just, like, obviously the craft with the words on the page, but even, like, the trajectory of their careers. But And so you start climbing up the Alice Monroe Mountain, but what happens, you get about halfway up and you realize, like, you can never get to the top of that mountain because you are not Alice Monroe. And you can only be who you are. You can only climb up your own damn mountain. And so... When I realize, like, okay, the mountain that I have to ascend is is my own, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be lonely, and it's going to be brutal, but when I get to the top, it's going to be really beautiful. And I'm going to know that I got there, you know, obviously with the help of so many people around me, all those people who I studied, people like George who taught me, people like the readers who tweeted the, you know, links to the Dear Sugar column back before they knew my name. Mm. Like, those people helped me, but in the end— the way that I was able to do what I do as a writer is to just simply, very humbly, very in a very terrified way, trust myself and trust that what I had to say and that the way I had to say it was going to be enough. And, and you know, that it would find its way, that it would find its audience. And so to really deeply keep faith with that, with your mission and your work, I think is the only way to get to the top of that mountain. One thing I've noticed is that you're very generous with your time. You speak at a lot of conferences, you do lectures, um, you you spoke at a Substack uh, online conference in the middle of the pandemic, which I was personally very grateful for. You do a lot of podcast interviews, you're doing this podcast interview. Just wondering why you why you choose to be like that when you could <laughs> just be sitting in your writer's study alone. You know, that's such a that's such a great question because it, it is actually one that I sometimes think like, okay, should I be different? You know, should I be more reserved and say no more often than I say yes? And I do, I've had to work on that because I get asked to do a lot of things. I cannot always say yes. I can't always be what we call generous because if we if I do that, 
what happens is I'm not generous with myself. But I have always been somebody who likes to do things. You know, I really, really, really love to connect with people. And I love to try to try new things. I'd love to meet new people and have conversations. I'm, I was curious about you. Like, what is, you know, t- you know you're the, one of the Substack people. I've never met one of the Substack people. So I'm like, I, I love to engage. Uh, you know, many years ago, um, I actually wrote about this astrologer in Wild. That, then when I was 22, I had this reading with this astrologer. And, and because I mentioned her in my book, when Wild was about to come out, I thought, you know, I should look her up and see if she's still doing readings. And I did one over the phone with her. She was in Minneapolis. Her name was Pat Kaluza. She's not doing readings anymore, but she was amazing. And one of the things she said to me right before Wild came out, she said, Cheryl, you know, you are somebody who has always drawn from that deep, deep, deep cave of the self, that deep personal, you know, self. And the thing you bring from that is that, you know, in your writing, that's what you give the world. And over and over again, you're going to be asked, you know, do you turn inward and keep it there and stay in the cave and just do your writing? Or do you turn outward and turn your face to the world and step into the world and see what see what truth and beauty and what you can find when you turn your face to the world? And she said, you know, you're going to sometimes want to shrink back into the cave. But what I encourage you to do is turn your face to the world. And I think about that a lot, you know, when people say, will you come speak to us here or will you come teach us there? I think, you know, what what am I going to learn from from turning in that direction instead of away from it? So, you know, it feels good to me to do it, I guess, is the answer. It feels interesting to me. And, you know, part of, I think, staying alive and staying vibrant as an artist is to be curious about the world. And I think that generosity at root is about curiosity. That's wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll give you another opportunity to be generous, which is, are there any Substack writers who you want to give a shout out to, who you think do particularly good work that deserve more attention? Uh, well, you know, there are so many. It's it's such a great question because I, I'm kind of, I've had to, it's almost like, I'm like, okay, I need to stop subscribing to everyone. <laughs> no, 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 you've got you to gotta keep doing that. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, keep doing it. Um, I love Sari Botton's um, Oldster. Oh, yeah. And it's really like, she has this wonderful take on on aging. And it's not, I mean, what I love about her focus is she always says, the oldster is not for people who are like getting older. It's it's like the the whole idea of aging at whatever age you are. You know, you could, you're, when you're 12, you're aging. Mm-hmm. You know, we use that word like to only mean old people, but mm. really it's about, you know, what, what does this experience of aging teach us? Uh, what do we learn from being, you know, 22 and 42 and 72 and 102. Mm-hmm. And people write about that and they and they fill out, they, they answer this questionnaire. And it's always it's always very inspiring and, and interesting to read. I love that. That's great. I, and I got to give a shout out to some of my fellow advice givers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, e. Jean Carroll. Um, Legend. G- yeah. Brammer, Ola Poppy. Uh, yeah. J.P. Brammer. By yeah, J.P. Yeah, Brammer. Yeah. He, he's wonderful. Heather Haverleski, who, uh, you Wonderful. know, just so smart. And, you know, I just love that there's, that's the thing about advice is, is I think sometimes people think like, oh, we're competitive with each other. And that's nothing could be further from the truth that all of these people are people I read and love what they do. And they all do it in such original ways. And of course, it's such an amazing, Substack is such an amazing and deep resource 
for the writers community, like Jamie Attenberg's uh, Thousand Words of Summer. Right. And she has this craft talk um, subject that, you know, she writes all kinds of cool things about writing. Obviously, George Saunders, you know, George sto- Saunders, story, yeah. Yeah. story club and, and so many, you know, really so many others. And then, you know, maybe my very favorite thing about Substack is reading about things that I would not probably otherwise read about. Mm. Like, I read this one, um, your local epidemiologist. Right, yeah, Caitlin Jettelina. Caitlin Jettelina. And I'm like, thank you. I don't even know who you are out there, Miss Caitlin Jettelina, but you have helped me. Right. And especially during this time where I'm thinking more than I've ever thought about things like vaccines and, you know, know, the the next COVID variant. And so that's been really cool, too, to explore kind of like science substack and and sub you know substacks that are a little more outside the you know my my normal path. Austin Kleon also right, yeah. is just well, I mean, I just I have never met him, but he's got such a brilliant mind and I just want to like go for a long walk with him, but I love, you know, he's always interesting. And I could go on. There right. are so many people. Right. Um but that's a start. Roxanne Gay awesome. too. I mean, see so like I'm just going to keep naming names. Lots of people are so good. It's so gratifying to hear that you're such a deep reader of Substack writers and that you pay it forward in that way. But thank you. Thank you so much for the, the time you've given me here. Thank you for publishing Dear Sugar on Substack. Thanks for all the, the writing you've given to the world and the stories you've told to the world and for your generosity. Oh, thank you, Hamish. It's been so fun to talk to you. You can find Cheryl's writing on Substack at cherylstrade.substack.com. Check the show notes for the spelling and all the other links, and I'll see you next week. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com. 